Have you ever experienced something so crippling in your life that has made you feel broken? I have. Are you someone who has a giving heart but is struggling to feel good themselves? Are you consistently putting your needs aside to take care of everyone else? If so, you're not alone. Giving starts with giving to yourself so that you are able to give of yourself to other people. Isn't it time you took back control and discovered what makes you tick? Join me in my journey and find out how you can feel better about yourself, live your best life, and share that with others. Thinking of yourself, it doesn't make you selfish. It makes you brave. I'm Nelia, and this is the Giving Starts With You podcast. I've created a Live Your Best Life blueprint. It's a free download that you can now get at www.travellivegive.com slash blueprint slash. This blueprint will look at seven key areas of your life, from how you manage your mental health to how you show up in your relationships, from self-care to job satisfaction, and how and what you choose to spend your free time on so that you can start living the life you deserve, desire, and crave. Because after all, it's time to start feeling better and create a life that makes you proud. You'll also learn in this blueprint more about yourself. You'll get clear on what really matters. You'll stop making excuses and take action and be one massive step closer to the life you want to live. Life is way too short not to live your best life. So what are you waiting for? Go to www.travellivegive.com slash blueprint. Now let's tune into the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Giving Starts With You podcast. I'm your host, Nalia Hutt. This podcast is brought to you by Travel Live Give, an organization that uh, is very involved in philanthropy. And as you guys know, our mission is to end loneliness and give people a voice that are feeling voiceless and powerless in this world. Today, um, we're going to be speaking with Scott Allardyce. And we're going to be speaking about um, employment opportunities for people with disabilities, um, disability rights movement, where it's heading, and how people with disabilities can influence um, decision makers. I want to jump right in because I'm very excited um, to have Scott here today. Um, Scott was born in uh, East York General Hospital on May 13th, 1966. He has lived in Toronto, Scarborough, Markham, and now Bowmanville, Ontario. Scott received his Bachelor Honours of Arts degree from York University in 1990. Scott has worked as a Senior Policy Advisor in the Ministry for Seniors and Accessibility and Treasury Board Secretariat as a Policy Advisor within the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing and the Ministry of Education for the Government of Ontario for the past, how many years, Scott? <laughs> uh, 32 years. Wow. Um, he is always volunteering as well. His volunteer work includes past chair of Transportation Action Now, past vice chair of Pace Independent Living. He has served on the uh, Bridgemount Bluffs Community Neighborhood Center Board. He's been a board member on The Move and Board of Directors of Ability online. I mean, Scott is an amazing, incredible gentleman that I am having the pleasure of getting to know right now with you. So Scott, welcome to the show and thank you so much. I know you're a busy guy and I appreciate you coming here today and sharing your time with us. Oh, you're more than welcome and uh, uh, thank you for the opportunity to have this discussion. Absolutely. Thank you. And Scott has recently founded the Canadian Disability Alliance. Um, I understand that this is an advocacy group is made up over 1,700 members across Canada, and their main goal of the Canadian Disability Alliance is to advocate on behalf of persons with disability and their families. So Scott, be besides all the things I just told everybody, who are you at the core? Who is Scott? Well, that, you know, in my 57 years of life, no one has asked me that question, so kudos <laughs> to you for asking it, because 
you know, uh, you often think to yourself, do you know yourself? And I, I think at my core is a person who cares about everyone. At least that's what I try to do every day. Am I successful in that? Probably not. I could probably do a little better than I do. But what I try to do is show empathy towards others, even people I might disagree with. I think the biggest problem that we have in society today, and not just in Canada, but around the world, is that people don't listen to others anymore. They they automatically assume that their opinion is right, regardless of what their opinion is, and if you don't agree with it, they tend to shut you down. Um, and this is true for everybody, and I think it's a shame that the art of conversation and the art of listening um, is leaving our society. And this is why I was so excited when you invited me to do this podcast, is to have a discussion rather than a, you know, a debate, because debates often lead to um, aggression and argument, because people don't know how to debate anymore. And I think that if we can get back to listening to one another, um, it would certainly help marginalize people make their case to the larger community that we too have a voice and we too want to be a part of the overall community. And I think if we could get back to that place, I think it would be good for everyone. I love that so much. Scott, do you agree that even um, almost more than what is being said is what is not being said? We need to hear the silence too. Yeah. Very much so. And I'll tell you a little story. Um, when I started in the government, I was hired as a junior policy advisor in the Ministry of Municipal Affairs at the time. And on my third day at the office, which happened to be a Friday, I started on a Wednesday. And on Friday, my manager called me into his office and I thought it was going to be a discussion about what my duties were going to be, who I was going to be working with, what he expected of me, sort of the usual welcome on board and here's what's happening speech. I was 24 at the time. And the first thing he said to me is, I only hired you because you're a person with a disability and I don't think that you will ever succeed in your career at all. And I think that you'll be a junior policy advisor for as long as you decide to work here. Wow. And that was my first ever discussion with my manager. And my manager didn't even hire me. I was hired by the senior policy advisor in the section. So that was my first actual meeting. Hmm. Now, I've often reflected upon that moment because if that had happened on a, on a regular weekday and on a Friday, I might not have had the courage or the strength to come in the next day. But in a way, I was blessed because it happened on a Friday. So it gave me two days to think about um, this unprovoked attack. And I decided that I was going to roll up my sleeves and show myself mm. that I was there because I deserved to be there. And I knew that I couldn't prove myself to him. He had already made his mind up. So when we talk about silence, you can be silent, but still advocate, either for yourself or for others, by actually doing things rather than saying things, by showing that you can do things, by challenging people, by doing good work, by contributing to an organization. Um, one of the things that I did in government as I created uh, the Connections Program, which started out to be a one-day information session on how students with disabilities at colleges and universities could get jobs in the Ontario government. And this expanded to a weekly newsletter um, and also resume, uh, resume database that I designed so that I could share resumes and opportunities, uh, not only with the job seekers with disabilities, but also managers that were willing to consider people with disabilities 
four positions. So I created that um, back in 2009. Uh, the Connections Program, when I retired, uh, has helped 205 people get jobs, either in the Ontario government or other sectors. So I'm very proud of that work. And I did that because of the conversation I had in 1991 with my first manager, because I wanted to show that people with disabilities do belong in the workplace. And I decided to create connections because I wanted to make a difference. And the other catalyst was in 2007, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it's a blood, for those that don't know, it's a blood cancer. And I had to take a significant time off of work. And I was at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto going for radiation, chemotherapy and surgery uh, to deal with it. And uh, two weeks prior to having my diagnosis, my, my ex-wife, we were married at the time, told me that we were going to have a baby. And my daughter is 16 now. Uh -huh. And um, having a child, being a father uh, with a disability is very interesting because my daughter's not disabled. And um, so we often have very long discussions about about life and and her dreams and and expectations. And she has very high expectations for herself. And I often have to you know, be be a cheerleader, but also tell her that it, if you want those expectations to be met, you have to work for them. They don't just fall into your lap. So when I created the Connections Program, I created it because I wanted um, that to be a legacy. And the other thing that I did, which I'm very proud of, is I... I became a senior policy advisor about six years before I retired. Um, but I was having trouble uh, getting promoted. And so I decided to go back to school and I got my master's degree. And I, and I did that through York University as well. And I, um, I took it at night and on the weekends and it took two years, but I got it. And I wanted to do it because I wanted to show people that I was committed to making myself the best policy advisor I could be um, to help people with disabilities as much as I could. And, uh, you know, these are the sort of things you have to do. And I, I often say to young people that are, are starting their careers, many of them think that because they have two or three degrees in their back pocket, that they should be starting at senior level positions or management level positions. And I often have to remind people that you have to work your way up. And it does take time. It does take an effort on on the parts of the individuals. But if you're willing to work hard and you're willing to be honest with people and you're willing to put your hand up and for assignments that nobody else wants to do mm -hmm. because you want to be seen as somebody who gets things done, that's how you move forward in an organization. So... You know, these are the types of lessons I try to um, provide to job seekers that I help. I still have 700 job seekers with disabilities that I'm in regular contact with about jobs. I'm still doing the work even though I'm retired. I don't do the newsletter anymore because I don't have access to it. But I still review resumes and do job coaching and provide um mock interviews and I do it all for free. I don't ask people to pay me. Mm -hmm. I just want to do it because I think it's important to do. And the best thing you can ever have in your life is if somebody sends you an email or calls you or, or uh, reaches out in some other way and says, because of what you did, I was able to get this job. And that's the, that's the best feeling that anybody will ever have is when you know that you've had a positive impact on somebody else who would have been a complete stranger if you weren't willing to put up your hand and offer your help. I'm feeling very moved by that story, you know, and everything, uh, everything that you have worked towards up until now and you're continuing to do. Um, I think we need more people like you 
who are willing to do the work that nobody else is willing to do and and do the hard work and do what they're passionate about, regardless of what people say. Um, that day that your manager said that to you, I'm glad it was a Friday too. And I get what you're saying with having the weekend to think about it. Um, how did you feel Monday going in? Did you feel a little bit angry? Did you feel ready to, you know, kind of rock the position? Like how, how did you um, move forward with that? Because a lot of the people that we're going to be speaking about today, um, people with disabilities, that's another lesson that I'm sure you're teaching them. How do you move mm -hmm. forward when, when somebody is bringing you down? Well, the thing is, many people with disabilities will tell you, and I know this because it's happened, is you get a lot of pushback and a lot of negativity because of people's misconceptions about who people with disabilities are and what they can do. The thing is, you have to, your first question uh, was so uh, basically important to every single human being, but particularly those with disabilities. Who are you? You have to be your greatest cheerleader. You have to be your greatest champion. If you believe that you can't do something, then you'll never succeed. You have to believe that you have something to offer. You know, I, I have a master's degree in public policy. My undergraduate degree is in political science and history. And I have a business certificate from Seneca College, which I'm also very proud of. Um, and I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the class. I think all my professors would agree with me if you were to ask them. <laughs> but I was dedicated to my craft. So I would say this to anybody, whether they have a disability or not. If you're going to do something, be dedicated towards that. You know, if you feel passionate towards it. One of the, one of the major policy pieces I worked on uh, was, again, something that nobody else wanted to do. There's a little, and it had nothing to do with uh, disability issues, which is one of the reasons I liked it. Um, because I also wanted to show that people with disabilities can do more than just uh, disability policy. They can do policy on anything. And so the act that I was asked to look after was the Public Utilities Act when I was at the Ministry of Municipal Affairs. And this is a small piece of legislation that no one has ever heard about, really. And it basically regulates how gas companies, uh, gas utility companies in Ontario operate within municipalities. That's why that particular ministry has responsibility for that act. And I was, and I wanted a piece of legislation that I could that I could work on and develop and, um, you know, make recommendations on how to improve it. And I, and I put my hand up when, the, when it became available because I knew that the larger pieces of legislation were gonna be taken up by more senior people. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to have the skills and ability to do the same thing with the Public Utilities Act that other legislation was going through. Um, that was a little more known to the general public. So that was one of the things that I did. And that led to other initiatives. Like um, I wrote a, a whole position paper on the transportation of dangerous goods by rail because it related to gas and oil. And I wanted to do that as well. I worked on the Dangerous Dog Liability Act and developed that with uh, some lawyers from the ground up. So I had a very um, unique perspective on development of policy. And I, and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't typecast and only working on disability policy. I wanted people to understand that I could work on any type of policy um, operation that, that was required. And there's certain general skills that every policy professional or legal professional has to possess. And that, you know, is the ability to do research, the ability to to uh, to meet with uh, people and do consultations, the ability to analyze data and come up with recommendations based on all of that work that's being done and writing it in a way that decision makers can then make a, a decision based 
solely on the evidence that's presented to them. And that's the nature of policy work. And that's why I was so driven when I was in my undergraduate uh, studies. I wanted to be a policy professional because I thought to myself, I can, I can feel passionate about these issues, but I can also work towards the betterment of, of our society by actually caring about the outcome. And not just looking at it as a nine to five job, but a way in which you can make policy uh, help everyone in our society. And I think if more civil servants felt that way, mm. I think you would see. I think you would see greater things happening. Absolutely. Like, can you give me an example of maybe? Um, without naming names or anything, of someone that you have helped um, through the employment opportunities and how it's changed their life and the way that they maybe look at the world or themselves. You know, do you often run into people and meet people with disabilities who don't feel confident because of what others, how others see them? And can you give us like a story maybe that... Um, yeah and kind of give us an idea of how powerful it can make people feel when they know that they're employable and they can do what they're passionate about and be really good at it. Yeah, I, I have several stories, but uh, for the uh, valence of time, I will, I will just give you one. <laughs> I'm um, glad you have several stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, all the 205 people that have found jobs, I know their stories. But the, one of the ones that I'll remember until the day I leave this earth is I had a young man who, who had um, very high-functioning autism. And he, um, he was very interested in working uh, as a policy professional like me. And he had the ability. His autism was preventing him doing well in interviews. So one of the things that I provide to people is mock interviews where, where we talk about how you can improve your on your interview technique, uh, the do's and don'ts of interviewing from keeping eye contact uh, during the interview, whether it's in person or on Zoom, um, the ability not to stutter too much, um, recognizing that um, they're also looking at you rather than the position in terms of who they want to fill the position. So you have to present yourself in a certain credible way. So he had gone for a couple of interviews before he approached me and said he, he was able to get the interviews, but not the job. And he was getting more and more frustrated. And he was wondering if, you know, public policy was really his deal. And he was called me up and he was very angry and very upset. And, and we had, a, I ended up talking to him for over an hour um, because I didn't like how the conversation was going and I was afraid for his safety. So mm -hmm. I wanted to calm him down. Um, so he didn't do anything foolish. So then I said, well, why not you come in there? This is before COVID. So I said, why don't you come in next week? We'll do a mock interview, and it'll just be you and I, so you can relax. I'm going to ask you very similar questions to a typical Ontario government interview that we have for uh, policy professionals, and then I'll critique your answers, and we'll and we'll work on improving your your outcome. So he came in, and we did the interview, and he did very well. And I said, you have to look at an interview as a discussion. Too many times people get afraid and nervous of an interview, but really what an interview is, you have to look at an interview as a blind date. <laughs> They're trying to get to know you and you're trying to get to know them. So one of the things I said to, said to him was, I just want you to relax. It's a conversation. And the conversation isn't about the position. Mm -hmm. It's about you. That's the conversation. So make the conversation about you. So he then got an opportunity to work in Nunavut. He called me and said that he was offered an opportunity to interview for a planning policy position in the far north. And he said, I'm a bit nervous, Scott, because I'm not a planner. 
but I don't know why they invited me. And I said, well, you applied and they thought that your skills matched at least enough of the job ad for you, you to be considered. So I forgot about the discussion because it was a few weeks after. And he called me from none of it. And he said, I got the job. <laughs> and he said, I never thought I'd live in Northern Ontario. And he said, and he sounded so relaxed. He said, this is the best place I've ever been. He didn't like crowds. He didn't like a lot of people. He hated living in the city. He was now living in a very rural community. And he said, for the first time, I can hear myself think. And I knew when we were having that conversation that I had helped in a very small way, um, came to, to be a professional uh, in a setting where he could actually do incredibly good work, be relaxed, and mm -hmm. just realize that he has something to offer. So I, you know, I haven't spoken to him since. Mm -hmm. um, but so I hope he's doing well. Um, That's amazing. Many, yeah, many of my contacts continue to update me on their careers, and I, I always love hearing from them. Um, and even some of them have surpassed my level when I retired. So there are some uh, in the connections program who are now in management, either in the private sector or the public sector. And, and I, they often say, you know, you were the one that, that helped and that makes me feel good. But as I often point out to people that they do 99% of the work, I am just there supporting them as they're going on their employment journey. But you know what, Scott? It, it, yeah. Support is a lot. You're honestly helping them begin to change the trajectory of their story. And um, without support, many skilled people, whether you have disabilities or not, uh, will become stuck. So your work is very important. I think you had a bigger part than you think you want to admit. <laughs> you know? Well, I I think I did, and thank you for saying that. I think I did, but I also want them to know that that without their desire or passion, no matter how much I do, won't yeah. amount to anything if they're not willing to, you know, take the take the chance. The greatest problem that I think people with disabilities have, yes, is applying to positions because I get this all the time from people is, oh, I don't want to apply. I don't think I'll get an interview. I'm not going to apply. And I've spent more time convincing very qualified people that no one's going to give you a job. No one's going to say, knock on your door and say, mm. you know, I have this job and I want you to have it because no one knows who you are. So if you don't put yourself out there, which is a big, it's a big thing to do, to put yourself out there. But if you don't put yourself out there, then no one's going to know you're there. Mm. And so you have to put yourself out there. You know, I, I, I still remember, this is a, I'll give you another funny story. So I was offered an interview with the CBC uh, before I started my career with the Ontario government. And they had a disability show and they were looking for a producer that would eventually become an on-air on personality. And they asked me if I would come in for the interview. And so I went in and the guy hired me right huh. after the interview. And he said to me, could you show up, not this Monday, but the following Monday and we'll get you going and you're gonna do some research. And then if it goes well, we're gonna have you do some reporting for us. So I said, this is great, it's fantastic. When I was 24 years old, I was a lot better looking than I am today. So I was <laughs> eager, eager about that. And so I came in on that Monday and the guy says to me, um, oh, Scott, he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, well, isn't today day one for me? And he goes, didn't anybody call you last Friday? I said, no. He said, well, you better come to my office. So I went into his office and he said, we had some budget cuts on Friday, and I'm afraid your job was one of the ones affected. I'm sorry that I or nobody else called you. So I had to call my dad, who was still working downtown at the at the time, and say, Dad, I don't have a job at the CBC anymore. And he said, you're the only guy I know, Scott, who can lose his job within two hours of, of <laughs> starting. Said, yeah, that, 
pretty much it. And it's interesting because two days later, I got the interview opportunity at the government. And if I had gotten that interview opportunity and had already started at the CBC, I probably wouldn't have taken it. So one of the things that people also have to remember, sometimes the road not traveled is not traveled for a reason. Mm. And, you know, although I would have loved to have been the next Peter Mansbridge, I'm dating myself when I use that name, but, <laughs> um, you know, the thing is that, but instead you know, of I, saying, instead of saying, oh, that, I guess that wasn't meant for me. Um, they can yeah. turn that around and say, I meant for better things, you know, try to turn the language of what we use yeah. for ourselves. So Scott, what would you say is the most frustrating part of your work? Well, now that I'm retired, I'm not frustrated at all. But when I when I did work, I have to admit, one of the frustrating parts is that when you work in a bureaucracy, um, there are levels. And you have to get anything of substance has to go through multiple levels of approval. And what was always frustrating for me as a, as a worker bee, that's what I called myself because I just put my head to the to the grindstone every day and tried to produce the best work I could is some of my stuff would sit for months mm. without movement because there were bigger issues to deal with or there were other more important issues that came along or there was an emergency that had to be dealt with. And although I did work on emergency things very often, most of the time my work was just the average, you know, policy development process. So, you have to, if you work in government or any large bureaucracy, you have to learn that your work is not the most important, it's not the only important work going on. There's other important work in other areas that you're not even aware of because you're not in the room for a lot of these discussions. So you can't get frustrated if you have to wait two weeks for an answer or you have to wait two months for an answer. Mm. You can continue to ask and continue to advocate for a decision and that's all well and good. And if you do that in a professional way, that's great. But you also, if you want to work in government or any large bureaucracy like the insurance industry or the banking industry, you have to realize that you might not see the whole picture of what's going on mm -hmm. because you're down in the forest and the decision makers are up higher and they're looking at the whole picture. And, and so, once you get to that point, once you realize that, okay, there are other things happening that, that may affect when my stuff is going to be reviewed and approved and move forward, I'm just going to continue doing what I do. I'm going to work on other things while I'm waiting for decisions, and I'm going to roll up my sleeves or put up my hand when other opportunities come available that I want to work on. And so you have to look at things always in a positive way. It's not about people don't make decisions or don't or or stop things from happening because you're working on them. Because mm -hmm. if you thought like that, the whole world doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around anybody. So you have to accept the fact that you are you were there to provide a public service. You're there to help the people. In my case, the people of Ontario to the best of my ability. And if somebody else makes a decision that goes against what you believe the or what you've recommended, then you you either shape in the cause again and try to get the decision changed or you accept it and move forward. Mm -hmm. It all depends on what you what type of decision you want. So yeah. that's how I try to that was the most frustrating part. And particularly as a younger man I had I found that frustrating, but the older I got, the more I began to realize that that's how bureaucracy works. And there's nothing wrong with it. You just have to know how to play the game. Right. Because when you're that young, you're probably thinking, well, my stuff's important. Why is it not getting the attention it needs? And exactly. it, didn't, it didn't stop you from continuing, which is great. All of these things you're talking about today are great um, lessons for business, but also in life. And I love that you pass those lessons on to the people that you're you're helping with, you know, on a daily basis. So, Scott, on the show, we talk a lot about um, doing what we love and how that makes us have a fuller life and and one of more happiness and purpose. How does it feel for you waking up every day doing what you love and advocating for people? 
Well, to be honest, I, I want to do more. I think that the, we were talking just before the recording started about the, you know, about the work that you're doing and how important it is. And the fact that, you know, during the pandemic, people began to really realize uh, the importance of community because we took it for granted. It was always there and then it wasn't, you know, you couldn't go out to have coffee with your friends or to the movies or go on a date or do any of those exciting things. But I want, especially your, your listeners that are not disabled, I want you to realize that people with disabilities, many of us, not all of us, but many of us live in that sheltered society, not because we want to, but because it's been forced upon us. Not being able to go out, not being able to get a job, not being able to go on dates or, or meet new people. Um, this has been a this has been a large part of the disabled community for a long time, and, and I found it interesting that when able-bodied people began to say, "Hey, you know, we can't go out, we can't do things," I'd say, "My," I kind of thought to myself as I'm listening to this on the news, "Welcome to the club." Yes, and powerful. You know, one of the one of the things that I think people have to to realize is that I, as a person with a disability, am not looking for sympathy. I don't want sympathy. I'm fine with my life. I have a daughter who loves me. Um, I'm dating again, which is scary but nice. I'm going to the gym three times a week now that I'm retired to the Ability Center in Whitby, which is a wonderful place to work out and to, you know, to have fun. So I'm not looking for sympathy, but I want empathy. Mm. I want people to at least realize that my life is not easy, but it's not, it's also not the most difficult life in the world. And, you know, I probably live better. There's about 7 billion people on this planet I probably live better than 6.999 billion people, despite having a disability. And I'm grateful for the life that I have. But I do struggle from time to time because uh, I have multiple disabilities. Uh, my primary disability is cerebral palsy. I've had cerebral palsy my whole life, but I've developed, I developed cancer when I was 40. I have, um, uh, arthritis because of the amount of falling I did as a kid and I'm, that is very painful. I have a lot of other issues and I'm dealing with all those issues. Um, so when I get up in the morning, the first thing I take is a personal inventory of what's not hurting, <laughs> which is, always takes me a little longer. But once I get through that process, I think about, you know, do I have a resume to look at? Do I have a, do I have a mock interview to set up? Or is there a job fair that I might want to let my contacts know about? So I think about all these things and try to plan out my day uh, accordingly. And the, like I said, the best thing that ever has happened to me is other than my daughter telling me that she loves me, which is always good to hear, um, is that when somebody calls me or emails me and said, I got a job mm. because... To have that conversation is so much better than to have the conversation is of I'm never going to find a job or I'm never going to be happy or, or I can't know, deal with it. Yeah, Scott, tell me if this is if if you agree with this or not, but we all need to work. OK, we all need to find a job. We need to have a form of income. But when I hear you say that somebody comes to you and says, I have a job, they're not saying oh my goodness, thank God I can make money. They're saying, I did it. I exactly. am somebody important. I have skills. I made it work. I, I can be confident. Despite what people think I'm not, I am all those things and more. And yeah. the hope and the, you know, that they have in themselves, the, the story changes. The story they tell themselves about who they are, it changes because they are just like everybody else. They, their lives may be different, but it doesn't mean they're less than. So when you say to me that, you know, they're so proud and so happy and they come to you and say, I have a job. Yes, of course, it's a money thing, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? Yeah, it's about acceptance. 
Mm. It's just like it's just like the big thing when I was younger. It's like um, I'm capable. Yeah. Yeah. But the big thing when I was younger in the disability community was you you got onto a different pedestal if you started dating if somebody was able-bodied. Mm. Because it was a sign of acceptance that somebody was willing to accept you. Despite your disability, someone was saying, I want you in my life. I want you to be my partner, whatever. But when somebody gets a job, that's an organization accepting them. Yes. Despite what happened to me on my third day in the OPS. And by the way, I worked for over 11,000 days in the, in the Ontario government. Um, and I only had five bad days. Wow. Five, five bad days. So if anybody asked me, is the Ontario government a good place to work? I would say it's an excellent place to work, but you may have a couple bad days and don't let those bad days turn you off mm. because everybody has bad days, not just me. But it's about acceptance. When somebody offers you a job, when you have a disability, they're really saying, we accept you. We want you as a part of our team. We want you to join our work family. Because when you're born, you're born into a family. You don't have a choice of who your family is. But when you're accepted into a group of friends or a work opportunity or or a club or whatever, it's because you've earned that opportunity to to be there. And that is that gives somebody so much confidence mm. that they can say, I finally have somebody who's yeah. or a group of people who are willing to accept me. Mm. It's almost like you don't want to be that's not the first thing you want people to see. So exactly. I'm not I'm not a person with disability, but there's disabilities in different ways. So I have mental health issues. That's a form of disability, uh, but I don't have a physical ability for uh, disability, for example. But you know, I think some things are only um, specific to people with disabilities, as you're as you're talking about them. And some things are across the board. Everybody, I think, wants to feel accepted, whether you have a disability or not. Everybody mm -hmm. wants to feel like they have a community, they have somebody to stand up for them, that people aren't going to be silenced when they're ridiculed, that people are going to stand up for them, that all of these things, people just want to be seen beyond all their negativity, right? Whether exactly. And disability or anger issues or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, um, I don't know, you know, I, I, I heard this once and I wish I could tell you where I heard it from, but there's three things that people like the human mind seems to remember when we first meet somebody. The first is what sex they are, then it's what color they are. And then if they have a disability, those seems to be the three things we automatically, without even knowing we do it, it's been proven that those are the things that we see in people. But how great would it be if we didn't see those three things first? I totally agree. It's like when you go to a bookstore, you don't buy a book because you look at the cover and say, oh, I'm going to read this. You actually open the book and read a little bit. This is something I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. That's how people are. People are like books. You've got to open up the pages then discover if it's worth your while, if they're worth your while. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that people with disabilities like everybody else, there are a lot of people with disabilities that I wouldn't want to be friends with, not because they're disabled, but because right. they're just not my cup of tea. And the other thing is that most of the people with disabilities that I deal with have hidden disabilities, like mental health issues, or they're on the autism spectrum. That's the vast majority of people that I've dealt with. They have a more difficult time finding jobs than people with physical disabilities because when they ask for things like accommodation in the workplace, mm -hmm. they're a little less believed by the employers because when I walk into a room, I'm never going to apply for another job again, thank God. But when I walk into a room for a job interview, I walk with two canes. So immediately a manager will know that there has to be a discussion about accommodation in the workplace if he or she is going to hire me. 
But for somebody like yourself, let's say, who has a mental health issue or, or some other hidden disability, having that conversation is always difficult because you're outing yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm already out as a person with a disability. I can't hide my disability. Mm -hmm. So I don't mind having a conversation about accommodations at the workplace because I know I'm disabled and so does everybody who meets me. Mm -hmm. But for somebody with a hidden disability, it's much more difficult because you've got to say, I'm a person with a disability and I you don't have to say what type of disability he is. And by the way, for your listeners, it is against the law in Ontario for anybody to ask you in an interview what your disability is. But when you start to say what accommodations you might need, then people can kind of figure out what the disability might be related to. So, for an example, with somebody with mental health issues, one of the accommodations that we've often set up for people in the Ontario government particularly is like a quiet area to go to um, if they're feeling stressed or overwhelmed. Um, so they can sort of take up a 15-minute kind of respite to collect themselves again um, and that kind of thing. So, you know, it takes a lot of courage for people with hidden disabilities to out themselves. And I've always said to individuals who fall within that category of disability, you'd rather have a conversation about accommodation rather than a conversation about performance. Mm -hmm. Because once you have a conversation about performance, the manager's already made up their mind that they can't trust you to do the work. Exactly. So that's one of the things that I often recommend to people is that having that conversation about accommodation helps you in the long run. And most employers, I would say the vast majority of employers, whether the public or private sector, uh, are quite willing and quite um, helpful when it comes to ensuring accommodations are met, not simply because it's the right thing to do or it's a human rights requirement here in Ontario, but because most people, I think, are decent human beings mm -hmm. who are willing to have that conversation. You know, the days of somebody saying what happened to me on my third day are long gone, are long gone. And you know what? I'm grateful that that conversation happened, even though it sounds weird, because that motivated me to do the kind of work that I'm doing today. I don't know what I would have, if that conversation had never happened, maybe I wouldn't have been as passionate as I am. And I think it. about it, sorry, Scott, to interrupt you, but I think about it from the other side as well, how the opinion of that manager changed through your career. Do you know what I mean? So well, they have his, learned. His, opinion, mm -hmm. his opinion never changed to me, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> I'll be honest. His opinion never changed. I had the misfortune because of various reorganizations in the organization to work for him for two different occasions after well, our you first. Know, that's just sad to um, me because um, most people would have learned yes, something. Yes, it is. No, uh, you, you, a, a brick wall does not does not give way to any new ideas. Yes. But uh, one of the things I did do is, is I sort of empowered myself. The, the last time I ended up reporting under him, I came into his office on the first day. And I said to him, look, you don't like me and I don't particularly like you. So I said, if you have any work for me to do, I'd like it in an email, please. I want everything written and I don't want any verbal or private conversations. Anything because I just want to Yeah, absolutely. So if you're willing to write it down that you think I'm useless, I want it in writing because then I know it's not going to be written down. Mm -hmm. Because as much as I disrespect the individual that we're talking about, I also know that he's pretty intelligent not to do that. So I decided that I was going to be the aggressor. And sometimes you have to put on that hat. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, you know, you're not, I'm not going to play this game with you anymore. I'm just not. And I had been 10 years in the organization and I felt a little more comfortable in my own skin at 34 as I did at 24. So to answer your first question as we started the podcast, also deciding who you are never ends because you're constantly changing. 
you're constantly growing, you're constantly learning new things, and you're constantly reevaluating who you are. So your development as a human being, at least from my perspective, never changes. Or sorry, never stays stagnant, always changes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to realize that, that we're sort of like the great city of Rome. Rome wasn't built in a day. Human beings are never, never complete. Absolutely. All, we're always building, right? Uh, unfortunately, I, I, the reason I go to the gym is I built myself too much, and now I'm trying to, now I'm trying to downsize. <laughs> so that's why I go to the gym. Although I do look healthy, I did look healthy when I started the gym because I look like a pear. But I'm working. I'm working more to look like a banana, a little more thinner. But uh, we're oh trying our best, and yeah, yeah. We always have to be ever evolving and learning about ourselves, you know. And and the more we learn about who we are, and that will change. That will, you know, hopefully will change and grow. Um, the less we care about the mean things that people say and how people undervaluate us. Um, we need to stand up for ourselves. Um, I think that's a great, you know, reminder for everybody. Everybody needs to be their best advocate, I believe. Oh, yes. I, I've learned that the hard way. And I, I try to advocate mm. for myself as passionately as I do for others. And the thing is that it's interesting because you always have to be aware that at least in the, the disability world, you're always going to have to re-educate people. This whole idea of Ontario right now has the the AODA legislation, and Ontario originally, when the legislation was produced, was going to be fully accessible by 2025, and when that was created, it was like 24 years ago when the legislation was first introduced. So. We said, oh, we've got two and a half decades to get there. Hmm. Well, 2025 is now in in less than two years. And we're still working towards full accessibility. We're never going to get to full accessibility ever, in my opinion. But what we are going to do, I think, is, is more and more people are going to be aware of these issues. More and more people are going to become advocates of these issues. And more and more people are going to be accepting of people with disabilities in our society. And that's a good thing. And and I don't, consider it, I don't consider it a defeat. I don't blame anybody for us not getting there. Because this has gone over the span of several governments and different priorities have happened. The pandemic happened. There were other emergencies as well, like Walkerton and a few other things in Ontario that really sort of derailed every every other discussion that we were having at the time. And I think that we have to realize that as long as we have people who are willing to fight the fight, mm. who are willing to champion the cause, then we will eventually. It's not the destination as much as it is the journey. And we have to accept the fact that along any journey, you're gonna have bumps in the road. You just have to accept the bumps and move forward. A, a famous quote from uh, from Sylvester Stallone as Rocky Balboa <laughs> in one of the later movies was, it's not how hard you get hit, it's how hard you get hit and keep moving forward. And that's, it's true with anybody. Life is going to get harder than any anybody in your life is going to hit. Life is going to hit you the hardest. Mm. If you're able to absorb the hit and move forward, then you'll be okay. It's when you stop moving forward that you're in trouble. And and the last thing I want to leave your viewers or your listeners with is the idea that failure is not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen to anybody is when they stop trying or when they stop caring. That's the worst thing. The greatest successes I've had have come from failures that I had previously. When I had to re-examine myself and say, okay, if I really want to get to where I want to go, I failed this time. What am I going to do to avoid the failure next time so I can end up where I want to be? 
And that's, if you can do that, and I'm not an expert, I'm, I've failed a lot, but I, I use my failures to my benefit to get to move forward and I'm constantly learning and it's and I try to tell all the young people that I work with it's okay to fail somebody has taught many people that failure is bad failure is unpleasant failure is not nice but failure is a reality of life and it's you necessary yeah, it does exactly. not feel good, but until we get to that edge, until we get to the edge of uncomfortableness, you know, we won't grow. And um, exactly, yeah, not everything feels good, but once you get through that, um, the world really feels so much better once you yeah. push through the tough times. What can the listeners, uh, before I let you go today, what what can we do as people who are listening right now, whether we have disabilities or we don't? that we can help you in your cause and help increase the employment opportunities and quality of life for people with disabilities? What can we do today? Well, there are, there's a number of things that you can do. Um, for anybody who's listening who might be an employer, um, make sure that when you're doing interviews that you're considering what your candidate pool looks like. Are there people um, with disabilities? Are there Aboriginal people who are a part of your talent pool that you're considering? Are there women for executive positions that you may want to consider? Um, are there visible minorities that haven't had an opportunity that you might want to consider? So broadening your talent pool will give you better talent to consider. That's the first thing. The second thing that anybody can do is if you go on Facebook, you can join the Canadian Disability Alliance for free. You just look up Canadian Disability Alliance and and the more the merrier. And, um, you know, I try to help people as well. One of the things that uh, we have done is that uh, we had a lady a few years ago who was going to get kicked out of her health club because she had to go in through an entrance uh, because it was the only accessible entrance and the, the owner of the club didn't want her to go through that entrance and was going to revoke her membership. And we wrote a letter on her behalf explaining why she could only use that entrance. And once we did that, um, they, uh, they re reversed her decision. So we try to help people. And if you want to help people with disabilities, joining and helping me in the Canadian Disability Alliance, I would be grateful for the help. Um, and the other, the final thing I would say is I don't want anybody to pity somebody with a disability. As I said earlier, I want empathy, not, not sympathy or, or, or pity. I, I've had enough of that in my life. I, I want understanding. And the thing is that I don't, I don't want anybody to think that I've had a hard life. I, I've had I've had challenges in my life, um, but would I change my life if I could be able-bodied? Sure, but if it would affect me in another negative way, if I wasn't able to have my daughter, if I made that decision, or I wasn't able to have the career that I had, then I wouldn't change. Everybody has struggles. Everybody has um, hills they have to climb or valleys they have to climb out of. Uh, nobody's life, except that maybe if you're Donald Trump, has a straight line in life. Everybody has challenges. Mm. And the thing is that we don't know what those challenges are because we have to read the book of the people that we're with rather than just look at the cover and assume what's in the pages. Getting back to the other discussion we were having earlier. So just remember that people people are wonderful stories. And if you want to discover wonderful stories, having conversations, listening to people uh, is incredibly important. And the final thing I'll say is that my my aunt, who's no longer with us, used to say now one thing that I've kept with me my whole life. She said, God gave you one mouth in two years, so you should listen twice as much as you talk. Yeah. I haven't followed that advice today, but uh, I try to anyway. 
I'm going to quote you. I'm going to put a quote out on social media and I'm going to quote you and I'm going to say, quote from Scott, people are wonderful stories. I love that so much. Scott, before you go, one thing that I would like to see is less indifference. I would rather, if people are curious, ask questions. Are you okay with that as a person with disabilities? Well, of course. I, I often have little kids come up to me and ask me if I was in a car accident or if I fell down a flight of stairs. And and because they're curious, they want to know. And getting mad at them or getting upset with them won't help them learn. So I, it's okay. Anybody can approach me and ask me any question about my disability, and I'm fine answering it, and I'm okay answering it because a part of part of the communication that I'm talking about is having some difficult discussions in order to gain knowledge about one another. I know I'm disabled. Nothing that anybody can say is going to change that. And if somebody wants to insult me because of my disability, which does happen occasionally, even today, I just laugh in my head and think to myself, well, I don't have to deal with you. <laughs> you know, you're not, you, there's nothing anybody can say that the 57-year-old Scott Allardyce hasn't either heard before and don't care. Now, if I was like 16, mm. I would get angry, but 16-year-olds get angry. Um, we just I'm gotta, a have to start changing the conversations and people need to become more educated yeah. and more open to having these conversations. Exactly. Exactly. I really, I really appreciate all this, um, all these lessons that you shared with me today. I certainly learned a lot from you, as I'm sure the people who are listening have. I'd love to invite people to share the episode with others who they feel need to hear it. Um, and you gave us really great suggestions of what we can do to become more involved. So I appreciate that as well. So I really invite people to go and check out the Canadian Disability Alliance and 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 help out Scott, help him in his mission. Um, let's keep this conversation going. I appreciate that. And I would love for you to share the link with me because uh, I'd like to post it too and, uh, and uh, maybe broaden the conversation even further. Absolutely. Well, Scott, thank you so much again for being... Uh, such an inspiring person to me. Um, I think you're you're quite incredible, and I appreciate all the work and dedicated hours you've put in to making world a better place for a lot of people and for educating the people who are hiring them. So thank you very very much for all that you do. I well, I appreciate the the compliments. I uh, I do I do try and. Um... <laughs> It's not a perfect system, but I, I, I get up every morning and, and say, what can I do to make things better? And then I think if everybody did that, I think the world would be a better place. So I'm going to continue to do that and uh, see what it brings me. Thank you so much, Scott. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I really appreciate meeting you and uh, um, continue doing what you're doing. Having these conversations is is extremely important. So kudos to you and uh, and best of luck. And if I can ever help anybody in this group, please feel free to reach out to me. Always happy to help. Thank you. And you're always welcome to come back on and uh, give us some updates on how things are changing. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe or leave a review. See you next week on the Giving Starts With You podcast.